This is the GeoVersive Earth Intelligence Podcast. Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us again. I'm Don Shelby. We're going to be talking about the world of finance and economics because it is changing rapidly. And there are so many tentacles to climate change and the effects on our society and on our planet that very seldom do we think about the dollars and cents and how we spend them. Very seldom do we think about the food we eat. So part of Geoversive Earth Intelligence is trying to bring people into the conversation that have a perspective where climate change has an effect directly on them and as a result on all of us. So as I said, the world of finance and economics is changing and more and more pension funds and bond issuers and uh, the whole stock market pulling out, divesting from not only fossil fuel company stocks and their portfolios, but any company that's contributing to the climate crisis. Joe Robertson calls it climate smart finance. One of the leading instruments are what is called green bonds. You know, I think for for those of us who aren't uh, financial professionals, it's worth exploring what bonds are. You know, bonds are securities, which means it's a type of investment that you can that you can trade, but which is intended to pay back a return on investment. The word bond itself essentially means that the bond issuer, the person or entity that you give funds to, is bound to pay you back. But it's also about a relationship. Bonds are longer term investments. And what it means is that there's a commitment at the heart of it. A green bond is more than a financial commitment. It's also a commitment to a type of investment outcome. What it means is that that bond is not just you investing funds in an institution or a project or a business, but giving that project or business funds so that it can do something good for the environment or for the climate. Uh, to make the risk of of dangerous climate change less, or to make the health and resilience of environmental systems better. I would originally have asked this question to Myra, had she been here, but I think uh, you can answer this well. The bonds are attractive to many investors because they often carry tax exemptions and credits. And the major players who have already or are willing to front the bonds I wonder if they think of them or whether we should think of them as nature-friendly. Yeah, there's there are a few things there, Don, that are really interesting to look at. There is a kind of uh, attractiveness about green bonds, in part because they're popular. People want to know that you're making those kind of investments if you're a financial institution. Also because, as you say, some of those activities have special benefits, special support, and that's because they do good for the world. So if you're going to use policy to try to incentivize good outcomes. This is a way to do it. Uh, there could even be some some real verifiability there that's also attractive to investors and those that are monitoring their behavior. The fact that you can actually do something that's good for nature, that you can reduce the degradation to ecosystems, that you can protect fresh water supplies, that you can build resilience against uh, major shocks in part by putting green infrastructure in place, which means restoring wetlands, protecting biodiversity, and in that way, making everything around that area safer, more secure, and ultimately a better foundation for building value. Those things are also attractive to investors. But there's also another element to what is attractive about green bonds, which is that 
the overall industrial economy has underinvested in the health and resilience of nature. And so there is a need for this. There is a huge gap in the market and green bonds are pointing the way to how you can know that you're filling that gap. Uh, so you also know that when you put money in, demand is going to follow it, which means that ideally the thing you're investing in should become more valuable. I want to make sure that the listener understands that this is not investment advice. We're not uh, brokers. We're not trying to sell anything. And we only provide this information as it relates to climate change. In 2007, I think it was, the first bonds were issued and the play was only a few billion dollars. And now that the IMF and the World Bank have gotten deeply into green bonds and with uh, the recent news that Germany is coming on big with green bonding projects, Forbes is reporting now that there will be $2 trillion worth of bonds, green bonds, issued by the first of the year 2021. Isabel Edwards is a green bond analyst for NN Investment Partners in the Netherlands and previously worked with the Climate Bond Initiative. We met the analyst on Climate Week at the United Nations. Joe and Myra and I were there with Isabel and recorded this interview in Central Park. I think you'll find it interesting. Isabel, could you tell us a little bit about why these principles are going to change the climate finance story? Yes, thank you. So the climate resilience principles are meant to be used whenever investors are looking to invest in projects and they want to make sure that the mitigation side is covered in these climate projects, but also the often forgotten resilience part of these uh, climate projects. And we are providing a framework for everyone to use, an easy-to-use framework that they can apply to all their investments, and it is free to download. And the idea behind uh, the principles was that it should be applicable to all investors um, and all investing platforms. It's a very important contribution to that landscape of innovation. Is, is it fair to say that because these are a set of principles, they can be applied differently in the particular context of different regions, different investment types, different institutions? Yes, yeah, sure. The principles we put together are six. So firstly, we need to consider the boundaries and interdependencies for assessing climate risks and resilience impacts and make sure those are clearly defined on your asset and your project. Secondly, we need to ensure that physical climate risk assessments are undertaken. Thirdly, that risk reduction measures have been undertaken as well. Fourthly, climate resilience benefit assessments, whether they've been undertaken. The fifth principle is mitigation trade-offs. Have these been considered in putting together this project that enhances resilience? Have there been greenhouse gas emissions that provide a mitigation trade-off and is it worth it? We need to analyze this. And the sixth and last principle is the ongoing monitoring and evaluation of the resilience of the project. The idea is that these can be applied to all investments. Something I'm hearing from this list of principles is that actually going through these six principles helps someone who may not be a resilience expert to understand what resilience is in the sense that you could invest in mitigation by simply paying for clean energy. So you have a lower carbon footprint, you mitigate the risk of climate change, but you could then have adverse resilience consequences or you may not be doing anything to build resilience. 
You might just be trying to slow down climate change. And so these principles are oriented towards helping people understand whether investments are doing both of those things effectively. Within all of our sector criteria that we put together at CBI, we have gone through various industries and analyzed which industries were most of interest to us to create sector criteria. And so, for instance, within bioenergy as an industry, we have put together a set of mitigation criteria, mitigation requirements. Alongside that, we have adaptation and resilience requirements. So we're covering both areas. For a long time, mitigation was pretty much the only thing people thought about when it came to climate change and the impact it was going to have on their asset. And now people are starting to recognize that the climate is not going to look this way forever. And what might be a good climate change investment now is not going to be that way in 10, 20, 30 years. We're pleased that the pickup of these resilience principles is showing that people understand that. That last point there is very interesting that the same climate investment might not be as positive 30 years from now. Does that mean that if I'm an investor and I want to make a choice about how to aggressively reduce emissions, I should try to favor those choices that also follow these principles, that also build resilience? For example, we've put together a list of investments that enhance the climate resilience of assets over their design lifetime. So we would count resilient features of new infrastructure on buildings, for example, um, as meeting the uh, climate resilient asset list, upgrading and modifying existing infrastructure to be climate resilient, adding spare capacity, meaning that if one piece of infrastructure is destroyed there is spare capacity and the service doesn't go down due to extreme weather for example relocation of at-risk infrastructure multi-asset multi-action adaptation projects and use of climate resilient crops such as drought resistant seeds and drip irrigation for agricultural production systems those are types of assets which are going to be very useful in 10 20 30 years time even if right now it's not necessarily going to bring the biggest mitigation reductions an investor making a choice about where to put their money if they can put it in something that has climate resilience, has more climate resilience than something else, in a sense, it has more real-world value because it's less likely to fail. Yes, exactly. I think that investors have slowly been realizing over the last decade that the value of these stranded fossil fuel assets and the value of these assets which are no longer going to become viable due to transition risk, physical risk, and policy changes, they are starting to see that even if they never cared about climate change, they do care about their money and where this is going to go and whether this is going to be profitable. And here is where the sort of two worlds align, the climate change world and the investment world. And you don't have to do both separately. You can still make money off these good investments while at the same time increasing the climate resilience of the future infrastructure. Are we moving from a world where the concept of climate resilience was more theoretical, more sort of future-oriented, a moral idea, and investment was all about the bottom line, to a world where you can't really have one without the other? Where we say, when we say the foundation of value is natural systems, it actually shows up in the financial calculations? Yes. I think that for a long time, these two worlds the climate change activism and the investment financial world were sort of butting heads. They were against each other. And it's good to see that finally the two worlds are sort of colliding and people are thinking about how they can work together on this. The 
dichotomy that investment in climate change was a bad investment was perpetuated for many, many years. And actually, there wasn't all that much evidence behind it when you actually got into it. And with the solar revolution, I think that showed the world that with the right investment, these renewable energy technologies, this climate change mitigation techniques can really be profitable. And historically, the fossil fuel industry has received massive subsidies that have propped up their development and made it so profitable. And people are now seeing that investments in climate change mitigation and in renewable energy can really be profitable and can really make money when the right investment is put in place. And finally, the ideas around this not being profitable are starting to change and it's good to see. It's no longer that difficult to quantify the cost from using these fuels and the disruptions that they generate because we can simply look at the subsidies. We're giving $5 trillion a year directly and indirectly to this industry. That's at least a baseline for the cost. This conversation to me, it sounds like part of what we're talking about is do we know what we're doing? Historically, we've thought, well, these people know what they're doing. They know the numbers. And now it seems like we're learning that the numbers are based on other calculations that we never did. We had incomplete math, basically. Is filling in that missing math part of what the Climate Bonds Initiative or its sort of network of partners are trying to do? The Climate Bonds Initiative is riding on this movement that has been happening already with the TCFD around transparency, around being able to see what these companies are doing and it no longer happening behind closed doors. And while the TCFD may still be voluntary in its reporting requirements, it is still part of a movement that shows that investors want to know what is happening and what is being invested in. And if you can't show that, people aren't going to trust you. And part of the requirements of the criteria that we put together for various industries are rigorous reporting requirements. And often people will come to us wanting to have their green bond certified as climate friendly. And we have to say, no, I mean, it seems like a good thing. It seems green on the outside, but then when you delve into it, there's not enough reporting, there's not enough detail, you don't have the information where it needs to be, and so unfortunately it can't be certified as a climate bond. And it's sort of this realisation that people have that green on its own is not enough. You have to really be transparent with your activities. There's a connection between climate smart investing and greater detail of information that mm-hmm. allows people to verify that you're actually doing what you say. Mm-hmm. And that, by extension, suggests that we have only done so much of that in the past, that we're living in a world where we're accustomed to ignoring a certain amount of detail about the way things work. These days, a lot of people seem to be thinking that there's a, a lack of trust in institutions. And I often think that there's a connection between these two things the idea that you can shape the world but not necessarily tell people how you're doing it. Is it possible to show that the businesses that are sharing all this information, that they're actually better off because they're doing that? Yes. So we have a database at CBI that we put together of green bonds that we consider to be climate aligned. And we were surprised to see that that people were very keen to have their green bonds appear in this database because it was a respected database. And when people found out that their green bonds didn't make it on, they were asking for meetings, they were asking for, you know, explanations of how they can make it more climate aligned. And the more people started to use the database, the more people were coming to us for information on how to move their investments in a more climate aligned way. For instance, 
within bioenergy, which is one of the industries that uh, I work within, saying that you have a bioenergy project just by itself, it can be many things. You can be chopping down whole trees to make biofuel. And people will come to us saying, I have a bioenergy project. Can you certify this? Okay, but what is your feedstock? Are you using whole trees or are you, are you using waste from an agricultural production facility? Oh, I'm not sure. Does it matter? Actually, this information is exactly what we're looking to see. We're looking to see deep details in the feedstocks and life cycle assessment, and we need clear reporting. Some of these issuers who are coming to us and asking this, it's maybe the first time they've ever been asked this, which shows me that perhaps this information should have been asked for a long time ago, but that this might be a new movement that's, as I said, in line with the transparency movement. You say you're doing business in an honorable way. Are you actually creating value or are you just taking money without necessarily generating value for the rest of society? Mm. What people tend to ask us when they first meet us Mm -hmm. is, are you making sure that greenwashing can't happen? So people are saying they've got this green project, they've got that green project, but then when CBR looks into it, they don't get certified as climate aligned or they don't get included in the database and they don't get to say that this asset in their portfolio is actually as climate aligned as they initially wanted to um, portray to the public. I'm not sure whether us crusading against greenwashing is really part of our mission, but I guess in a sort of indirect way, that is what these criteria requirements are doing because anything can be green if you just say it's green. But Are you really taking the time to look into your activities the same way that socially responsible investment is kicking off? You want to see your asset managers showing you exactly where your money is going and which companies it's going to and what those companies are doing to make the world the better place. We're already seeing various different financial institutions offer socially responsible investment as part of their portfolios to average customers. And people are demanding this now. People will want to see companies through life cycle analysis, through threshold calculations, through adaptation and resilience assessments and checklists, and they put the time in. They're not just going to get the promotional effect without the work. Is it inherently dishonorable or inappropriate to do business in a way that is not green? I mean, at the climate summit this week, people were being called out directly, certain companies were being called out directly, and it's good that it's no longer just swept under the rug. It's, oh, people have to make money. We have to have economic growth. We have to have profitability at the expense of all else. I mean, Greta Thunberg was uh, talking about you ignore climate change for the, uh, what did she say, the fairy tale of endless economic growth. I'm not sure if that's exactly what she said, but I'm paraphrasing. She spoke about economic growth in a disparaging way, and it's good to see these companies be called out. I think people are starting to realize that their money is now at risk and their money is going to be no good in some of these infrastructural and energy projects in a few decades' time. And that's a worry to people and people have seen how badly wrong it can go with short-term visions. Mm -hmm. And people know this better than... Actually, I think the financial people know this better than anyone, that you need to have the physical and transition risk considered um, for your projects. And so now we're just putting names to it. We always knew it, but we're putting quantifiable 
metrics to it. Mm -hmm. And that's where the climate change community can come in with its science and with its thresholds. And that's where you can combine the two. People were always concerned about where their money was going to be in a few decades time. We're just using it for our benefit in the climate change community and marrying the two together. And it turns out that that long-term value is grounded in natural systems. That's what we need, yeah. Is there a simple way to say where you would like to see the financial sector of the world go? What should it be like if all of this work has been successful? I think that having earth intelligence and environmental information at the core of investment decisions, part of the framework integrated into decision-making when it comes to which assets to invest in and not, and which to move away from in policy decisions. I think that that is the world that we want to see created and not to have it as a sidebar, a sort of corporate social responsibility side piece that is used as a promotional activity. It should just be part of the institutional frameworks that we see in the financial world. And I think that we are on our way there. But as I mentioned previously, having certain disclosure agreements still being voluntary, this does need to change. And certain countries like France have made it um, more mandatory for banks to disclose their financial activities. And we need more countries to have public policy that supports financial disclosure in climate change. And that needs to come from a governmental level. And before the governments get to that point, we need companies to take it upon themselves and for consumers to demand this of companies. It does seem like we're talking about climate aligned means future aligned. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a business that feels like you're on the wrong side of that equation, you want to try to find a way to evolve or innovate quickly enough to catch up. It's good to hear that there's a way to talk about this big revolutionary change in that way, where everybody is part of the future. We're not saying certain companies can't exist or certain towns have to go bust. Somehow or another, there's climate smart money that can go to those people to do something smarter. Yeah, there's more than enough money going around for climate finance and for green activities and making sure that we don't pit one group against the other and try to make it seem as if we're attacking people's lifestyles is one way to properly engage everyone in the climate change revolution and especially in making sure that money goes to the right places. I have a final question for you, which is given that we're talking about principles in the background here. What can the relevant actors do, whether they're investors or companies or governments looking at these principles? What's the first thing they can do to take action in response to the release of these principles? Well, I think firstly, have a look at how your current investment addresses resilience. Does it invest does it address resilience at all and take it from there if you can clearly see that there are massive gaps if it hadn't even been thought about when first investing then you know that you have a framework to use to go through it if it's already a climate resilient investment great then you were ahead of the curve but these are meant to be quite simple steps to take and we've laid out a methodology so that you don't necessarily have to follow our principles, the ones that I mentioned earlier, the six principles. You can also 
go through the methodology that we used and come out with your own principles. One thing to take away from these principles is that we need to be thinking about this. So if you haven't thought about it already, think about it now. Wow, Joe, that was a great interview. And I learned an awful lot. What did you take away from that? One of the things I took away is that the effort that the Climate Bonds Initiative and the panel of experts that they put together to develop these climate resilience principles, um, they helped to create a roadmap for others to follow. Um, if you want to know that you're reducing risk and building resilience, which essentially means you want to know you're getting stronger, your likelihood of good outcomes is getting proportionally higher. You can outline the boundaries and interdependencies between different areas of activity and use that to build resilience to show that you're actually doing something good. You can do a physical risk assessment. So you're not just worried about the risk in the marketplace. You're also thinking concretely, what is the physical risk from climate change, for instance? You can take risk reduction measures. E each of these principles is essentially moving everyone towards a smarter way of doing business. That's the main thing that I take away from it. Well, thank you very much for doing the interview with Isabel. I want to thank our listeners uh, for joining us and for, for giving us this, this time. And I also want to leave you with, with this news. Uh, when, when the Resilience Intel Initiative started tracking the amount of climate smart investment across five sectors in 2017, the amount from 2011 to 2018 was $3.56 trillion. By November of 2019, just 10 months later, it was $5.58 trillion. By January of 2020, it was $6.08 trillion. And now in September, that number has been upgraded again to $6.92 trillion in committed finance for climate smart priorities. So the kind of thing we're talking about in this in this interview with Isabel, the climate resilience principles, green bonds and climate bonds, they're creating a foundation that is real momentum for a greener future. And we're going to be coming back to you with more of this kind of news because as Don said earlier, uh, the landscape is changing very fast. Joe, thank you very much. And to uh, Myra, our best wishes. Uh, during her absence, we'll be back next week, and we thank you very much for joining us here on Geoversive Earth Intelligence.